This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by those other hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello, good day, good morning. And Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibovitz. Hello to you. Today on the show, a major conversation. Our Jew of the Week is a big, massive Jew, Rabbi Charlie Citrin Walker. You know him as the rabbi at Temple Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas, where he and three others escaped from a tense hostage situation two Shabbases ago. We talked with him about Texas Judaism, about proselytizing, about the role of the media in covering the tragedies, and about his history as a big macher in Michigan high school reform circles. It was a really fun interview, you know, inspired by something not fun, but really, really fun. And we're super excited to have it. So even if you can't abide our banter and news of the Jews and the rest of us, you want to you hang out for that. But guess what? We have some catching up to do and we do have some news of the Jews. So Liel, it's so good to be in the trenches with you. This was a week where <laughs> you and I were two of the most attacked Jews in Jewishdom. Or, or as I call it, Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, this welcome is to my life. world. This is what it's like to be me every day. Because this week, pretty much like every other week, <laughs> it will it will shock and surprise you to know that that some people took issue with some some of the things that I said on the show. C- can you guess what? So, two things, I guess. One, you referred to the hostage taker in Colleyville as an animal, and two, you said that there should be armed people in shuls, and that anyone who goes into take people hostage should know that he or she has about 45 seconds before they get a bullet to the face. Was that, is that a, a good precis? That is a, that is a very good precise as, as it's pronounced in Hebrew. We. Oui. You also said that you were too sexy for Anne Frank. That's right. <laughs> so I just want, I want to lay it all out there. And by the way, when you refer to yourselves as the two most attacked Jews in the past week, I, it's helpful to contextualize with the, these were online people being mean to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I will say for every person who wrote in to demand that Josh Cross, the producer Josh Cross and I cut a video version of I'm Too Sexy for Anne Frank, which we may have to do if, if you're not totally. careful. We may have to rip, rip our uh, shirts open and, and just kind of sashay on the catwalk. Uh, there were about seven to 14 people who wrote in to say that, oh, here, here Liel goes again with the guns. I read these replies carefully with as open a heart as I can, because I really think that the most important thing that we do here on this show is basically just model a conversation with people who disagree with you. But I have to tell you, there's something that drives me absolutely bananas. And this is the notion that people who identify as being anti-gun look at people like me who are, you know, gun, gun curious or enthusiasts who in many cases, again, like myself, are very reasonable about things like restrictions and regulations and background checks and, and all licensing and all other manners of commonsensical measures, and say to us, you are just fanatics. Your answer to everything is guns. Guns are never the answer. So two things strike me as like absolutely insane about that statement. First of all, I was not saying on the show that guns are the answer to everything. You weren't saying guns are the answer to when my children misbehave. Right. Well, (laughs) uh, let's put that aside for a second. I was saying when someone walks into your shul with a gun, having a gun yourself may be the answer, which is pretty much a very logical thing to say, which you may disagree with, which leads me to the second thing. I am still puzzled by how many people in the anti-gun camp basically believe that guns are never the answer. Like, uh, someone holding a gun to your head right now. No, guns are still not the answer to that. It's this kind of 
dogmatic worldview. And they then they well, accuse people like me of being kind of like zealots about it. They're the zealots. May I interrupt or cooperatively yes. overlap as you linguist uh, Deborah Tannen would say about us Jews? I'm unarmed at the moment. So um, it's not just that. And you know that I'm, I am a gun skeptical person, human being. I'm, <laughs> this is my truth as a gun skeptical American, as James McGreevy would say. You're a gun truther. Yeah, which is, you know, I don't like guns. I have fired guns and, you know, I've been trained in guns, but I don't want to own a gun. They make me nervous. I don't trust myself with them. That's fine. But what was interesting was I had a conversation with someone who said to me, you know, you should never have a gun in shul ever, ever, ever. And I said, well, should we have guards? And this person said, yeah, you should have a guard, maybe outside, maybe even inside. I said, so basically what you want is to offload your security to, I'll be crude here, to like the Gentile ex-cop with the gun. You're not anti-gun. You just want to be purer than that. And, you know, one of the great books of last year was Al Press's book about people who do the dirty work that we don't want to have to do. Prison guards, people who work in slaughterhouses, these things that we all find repulsive, but that we kind of know go on in our society and we're sort of okay with it as long as these disgusting subhuman people right. do the work and, and, and it's out of our sight and we don't. And this is one of those things, right? So there's like these people who, and this is one position that bothers me the most, which is the position of like, well, somebody might have to be armed. There should be cops somewhere. I'm not- As, a, as producer Josh Cross is just writing in our script, a Sabbath goy with a gun. It, right. And the, the person with the gun could be a Jewish guard who's not observing Shabbos or whatever. But the point is, if you think anybody should have a gun, you can't be fundamentally opposed in a fundamentalist sense to that person maybe being a Jew inside the building. That that bothers me to offload the the shit work basically to these pay the paid help. I don't that strikes me as problematic. That was my feeling about it. Can I ask a question here? Um I'm someone who is like very creeped out by guns. Guns scare me. I have no interest in guns. I, I would like there to be no guns, right? And that's the I think a lot of people are coming from that point where like I hate that that guy got a gun, the guy who held everyone hostage. Like, I hate that he has a gun. And that's that's like a hard emotion to work from. So my question in the context of a synagogue is a Talmudic one. Can you shoot a gun on Shabbat if you are religiously observant? Like, what are the gun rules? Pikuach nefesh, a thousand percent. If someone is literally there to kill you and you have a firearm that could stop that situation and save Jewish life, one thousand percent is absolutely no question. Absolutely no question. And do you shoot like once? Like I like I really want to get into the the talkless here. Hmm. That that is an amazing question. And Stephanie, already I'm very proud of you. <laughs> for, I've been listening for to Liel's Take One Talmud podcast. <laughs> You're walking down the path to both gun ownership and no, Talmud Talmud scholarship. I'm I'm very very proud here. Her podcast will be called Glock Yomi. <laughs> <laughs> So I would say as, as, as the Glockera Rebbe, I would say that the Israeli army actually has really kind of intelligent opening fire procedures here. You shoot in order to sort of neutralize the, the, the danger. If you could achieve that without taking life, yeah, that is, that is preferable. You know, if you could shoot to stop someone, shoot the kneecaps first, anything but a, but a sort of a headshot, go ahead and do that. But again, you know, I want to tell you how thrilled I am by having this conversation, because to me, again, it mirrors how kind of senseless this position of, you know, we don't like something X, therefore something X shouldn't exist, which is which is really like, OK, yes, you don't like guns. And if someone could take away the 300 million firearms that we have in America, I, too, agree. Maybe there will be some benefit to that. However, that can't happen. It's like saying, I don't like mosquitoes. Therefore, I wish for all of them to disappear. Listen, they're here. Like the, the position of like, oh no, I don't believe in bug spray 
is just insane to me. And these people are absolute zealots, which they have the right to be. I mean, look, but then they turn around, they accuse me of being the zealot. It's become a polarized world, right? Because the NRA is against basically all background checks and restrictions, right? It has been polarized into Correct. real unthinking madness on both sides. Correct. That conversation doesn't help Jews who are afraid and scared. Yeah. And I think I think there's also a piece of this that feels unfair. Because you're going to come into my sacred, safe space with a gun. I now need to start considering all of these. Like, it just feels like something that minority groups have to take it upon themselves. Like, it just there's something Correct. about it that just that doesn't feel good. To which I say, welcome, welcome to Jewish history. Yes, that has always been the unfair kind of storyline. Someone comes in with a gun or a spear or a torch into your shtetl slash shul slash promised land and then sets shit on fire. And it's up to you to defend yourself. It's not nice, but, you know, we've learned how to do it, which is good. But enough about me, Mark Oppenheimer. Uh, you, were, you were equally hated this week and reviled. I characterized the attacks on you. Do you want to characterize the attacks on, on me I and do. what I did to deserve it? Of course. And, and I want to start by telling you a story uh, of, of how I learned that you were <laughs> the flavor <laughs> of the week. So I don't post a lot on Twitter, but I do lurk. And at some point a few days ago, I started seeing a lot of action, a lot of traction, a lot of movement, particularly on the subset of Twitter known as from Twitter. That's the Twitter universe dominated by, you know, mainly religious and observant Jews. Very active on Saturday night when they log back on, by the way. That's when it gets, he that's when it gets heavy. <laughs> you have no flipping idea. The number of kind of like shots of books, like read this over Shabbos, which of course then kind of like evolved into memes, like, you know, the back of a cereal box, like read this over Shabbos. <laughs> uh, so I started seeing chatter about someone, some, some unconscionable Jew hater, some monster having written a vilely, virulently, vitriolically anti-Semitic op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which, which really surprised me. You know, the Wall Street Journal isn't precisely a publication I think about as, as suffering from systemic Jew hatred, but, but I was really keen to see, you know, who this, who this you know, person, who this enemy of the Jewish people might be. And then I click on the link that some of them provided, although not all of them did. And do you care to guess who the author of this reviled piece is? It is I. It is you. I am the one who is an anti-Semite, not only an anti-Semite, according to the Twitter sphere, but I'm ah. actually a pro-assimilation, anti-Jewish practice. Correct. Jew hater with fascist tendencies who simply wants religion, especially Judaism, to go away so that the Goyesha blonde Protestant mainstream can dominate the country with no uh, peep from those yucky Jews. That's who uh, that's me. A final solution to the Jewish uh, problem, <laughs> courtesy am, of Mark Oppenheimer. Right, the author of Newish Jewish Encyclopedia, <laughs> the book about bar mitzvahs, and Squirrel Hill is actually on a secret, it's actually a secret long con to get people to drop their Jewish observance. It's very long and it's very <laughs> unsuccessful, I will say. <laughs> 300 episodes later. You meant the Squirrel, the Squirrel Hill book to be a comedy. People didn't get that. Oh my God. So basically I said two things in this piece for the journal, which by the way, like all of my most controversial pieces, you know, I think I, I wouldn't, couldn't even have guessed, right? What was controversial about it when I filed it. So I said two things. I basically said there's, there's two Jewries in America right now. There's the Jews who do not enter Jewish spaces and their lives are relatively free of anti-Semitism, particularly in that the old social anti-Semitism where you couldn't get a job at some law firms and you couldn't move into certain neighborhoods and you couldn't date Gentiles and you couldn't get into certain colleges. That, that anti-Semitism my dad grew up with is basically gone. But there's a lot of anti-Semitism 
directed at Jewish spaces, JCC, kosher markets, um, Jewish day schools, and shuls, right? Or, or even people who look Jewish. I mean, even people who like visibly... I pointed that out, something that a lot of our country's leading newspapers don't want to point out, the attacks on people who present as Orthodox, for example, or come out of Jewish buildings on Shabbat or whatever. So I thought this was a fairly non-controversial thing. I got attacked on two fronts. One is the people who said, oh my God, there's all this rising anti-Semitism in the form of social media, in the form of campus anti-Semitism. And by the way, that's like, that's a fair point. I think it was sort of outside the scope of what I was talking about. I was talking about the very real end of job and college admissions discrimination. Although to be fair, you also mentioned that kind of anti-Semitism in the I piece. I mean, as a throwaway line, but you still refer to it. You're clearly not oblivious of the fact that people hate Jews on Twitter. And I said very often that anti-Semitism is, is kind of masking as anti-Zionism. I mean, I really kind of credited that point. But the point, and so whatever, that was one bit of pushback. But then the other bit of pushback was the people who read my last paragraph to be saying that those Jews who still put themselves in harm's way are the idiots, that it's victim blaming, and that I was victim blaming. And I want to read that paragraph. Can I? Can I? Can I? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Do, sure, do, sure, uh, sure. do a dramatic reading. Here's sure. the paragraph. Because again, I, I have to tell you, I, I reread this piece this morning in preparation for this discussion. And the fact that anyone would read it as anything but what I know you meant it, you, you know, shul board president slash chazen <laughs> gabai of the week, Mark Oppenheimer, uh, is, is just insane to me. Let, me. let me read it. Yet it will be an ever-shrinking percentage who will actually be in harm's way. The Jews at risk of anti-Semitic attack will include the small but growing number whose clothes make them targets like many Orthodox, including Hasidim. Then there are the teachers at Jewish schools, the kosher butchers, the nurses in Jewish homes for the aged. And of course, there will be those eccentric holdouts, Jews who continue to enter places like synagogues, having decided that praying with fellow Jews is worth the risk of dying with them. Which to me, unless you're like, unless you're an absolute creep, reads as Jews like me, like us, who still do Judaism, which is clearly the subject of this freaking piece. The funny thing about writing for a place like the Wall Street Journal, which is a paywalled publication, is that the majority of people who are tweeting about your piece have actually not read it. So I don't necessarily know that there's a willful misreading. I think that there were a few screen grabs that get sent around the internet that people actually haven't read the piece. And so if you see that eccentric hold, like, I think that, I think we lose context in these sorts of things. You know, Mark, I think one point you were trying to make, which was an, is something you sort of seem to be like teasing out on the show these past few weeks, is this idea of like the systemic social anti-Semitism doesn't necessarily exist anymore. I will say that I've heard from people who say that actually there still are country clubs that like you just know Jews don't belong to. Like, it's funny, like that seems to be something you're you're piecing through here, like this idea that oh, you can't work at a white shoe law firm if you have a name like Greenberg. Like, that that doesn't exist anymore. I, I agree. Look, I got one email from somebody who used to live in the Upper West Side of New York. He said he was went to B'nai Jeshurun and now he lives farther out in one of the exurbs or rural New York. I wasn't entirely sure what. And, and then he followed up and we had a really nice exchange where he said, you know, when you move outside of New York City, you know, he did hear somebody say, Jew them down. And then there was some concern about some Jews moving into a certain neighborhood. And what if they were Orthodox? And what if they were going to, ruin the property values, that you do hear this kind of social anti-Semitism. I certainly wasn't saying there is no anti-Semitism. I was saying a particular kind that used to be the most- By the way, so sorry to, to interrupt, but last time this exact scenario came up, you know, people concerned about Orthodox Jews moving in and driving property values down, it was by other Jews in that right. it's usually, <laughs> it is, we should say it's often reform and secular Jews who Correct. don't want the like, from oh, Jews We don't want in. these people. But look, 
I mean, what I was saying was the old worst anti-Semitism, which was the one that denied you jobs and housing, is basically gone. Now, I have said as a look, I do a lot of investigative journalism. If people know of a country club or a law firm or a neighborhood where there are really systematized policies, whether they're stated or not, but that keep Jews out, if that country club exists, please send it to me, Moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. I want to investigate it. But in 25 years of doing this, I haven't come across one. It's largely urban legends at this point. But look, back to your point, guys, about that last paragraph. I mean, the people who saw only that I called shulgoers eccentric holdouts without the ironic context of all of it, that I was putting them in the same league as nurses in Jewish homes for the aged. Yeah, I just think, first of all, I can't really be held responsible for people who respond to a screen grab of one or two lines. Second, it does baffle me that people could read a paragraph in which I talk about nurses in Jewish homes for the aged and people who go to shul and think that I'm saying they should just stop. People should stop taking care of elderly Jews in Jewish homes for the aged. People should stop teaching at Jewish day schools. I don't understand that reading. Nevertheless, like it obviously is painful when people get something out of a piece that hurts them that you didn't mean for it to happen. I'm I'm not going to be. You have no compassion for so, them. No, yeah. no, 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 zero. I'm sorry. This seems to me like particular bad faith that that deserves deserves mockery. And here's the thing, by the way, as the AR15 Rebbe, the AR Rebbe, if you only referred to Mark's piece on Twitter or in angry notes to us because you read a screen grab somewhere or someone told you about it and you didn't bother reading the piece, I am prescribing a day of fasting for you. You must now atone for committing one of one of the cardinal sins of our time, which is shouting without even taking the time to read and think for yourself. From sunrise to sundown, you must for one day give us atonement. Sunrise. Okay, here's the thing. The t- my takeaway from your piece, Mark, and my takeaway from everything that's happened, and by the way, your conversation that we're about to hear with the rabbi from Dallas, I mean, is that we do need to be in Jewish spaces, right? Like we cannot be afraid to go into a kosher market or we can be afraid, but we have to keep doing it. And that, and that whole thing is that we are going to put our Jewishness in your face and it's not going to be something that, that scares us. That identity is not going to be something that we hide. And I think that's what we've been all doing these past few years, specifically with the show and everyone we talk to. I mean, we're basically trying to figure out how to how to be Jewish in today's modern world. And yes, while that doesn't include, you know, not being able to live in certain areas anymore, it includes sort of like this very, very, very visceral threat of like someone might walk in and shoot you. So I think we're all trying to contend with how to be proud public Jews in a time when it feels frankly very scary. And that's sort of what, to me, that's what your piece was saying. Like it actually is scary to be a Jew right now. It is. It, it totally is. Um, I want to say one more thing just before we leave this, that about a you know, couple dozen people wrote to me and a dozen of them were, were cruel and abusive. And whenever they sort of trot out the F word and tell me to go fuck myself, it's like, yeah, I'm, I, really, would you want your parents or your children to see you behaving that way? I mean, really like think twice, right? Like let's always be our best selves. But then a dozen people wrote nice letters and about four or five of them I wrote back to. I try to write back to some sampling of people who reach out to me. And maybe you guys do the same, Stephanie and Leo. I know you do. I know that you guys also write back to a sampling of people who write back, who write to you. One person whom I wrote back to, a really nice note saying, I think you misinterpreted, here's why, then posted the note to some other Facebook group where some blogger grabbed it and then it ended up all over Twitter. And it's the first time that's ever happened to me. Like I've probably responded to a thousand unorthodox listeners over the years. And this one who I believe is in the unorthodox you know, world, then forwarded it around to the world. And, and no, I never said keep this private. And I obviously, everything I write, I know could leak. You know, I'm very conscious of that. But it just does seem to me that there's a kind of breakdown of civility, not only in the abuse and in the bad faith readings, but then circulating the email. And I just, you know, 
it's hard for me. I mean, I said to my wife, I said to Sid, you know, I want to go open my bookstore. I just want to sit behind a counter. I want to be like Hugh Grant in Notting Hill. I just want to sit behind the counter and I want to be British. I want to sell travel books to attractive people. And I want Julia Roberts to walk into my store one day. By the way, I mean, I think something that we're touching on is sort of like this intra-Jewish fighting. And let's go, like, this takes us to the news of the Jews because actually there are things outside the Jewish community that are worse than what's happening to us. And I want to, I want to bring us in. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. I have to say, by the way, it always sounds like Liel, that song. <laughs> Yeah, Like, I always think, I know it's Steve Barton, but it does sound like Liel. You live long enough and everything that's sort of off-kilter begins to yes. sound like Liel. <laughs> um, a Knoxville couple is suing the Tennessee Department of Children's Services, saying that a state-sponsored Christian-based adoption agency refused to help them because they are Jewish. So this is Elizabeth and Gabriel Rutan Rahm. Basically, this adoption agency, Holston United Methodist Home for Children in Greenville, Tennessee, told them that they were fine, they could start the training, and they could do everything. And then on the day they were supposed to begin the training, this article says, the organization told them it only serves families who share their Christian belief system. I felt like I'd been punched in the gut, Elizabeth Rutan Rahm said in a news release. It was the first time I felt discriminated against because I am Jewish. Um, that's really messed up. Here's an example of a couple trying to foster a child, trying to adopt a child and being told that they can't because they're Jewish. So I I hate to continue in my campaign to destroy the Jewish people here. Yes, continue, please. This is a religious freedom question and it's, it's very complicated, right? We could imagine a Jewish adoption agency. In fact, there used to be a Jewish adoption agency. In fact, there probably still still are. Yes. Who's, who's, commitment is to placing children with Jewish families. And in fact, as you guys on this show know, I speak from personal experience because my late grandfather had a child uh, before he married my grandmother out of wedlock, as, as they say, as they used to say. And that child was adopted through the Louise Wise Agency. She was the wife of Rabbi Stephen Wise, who for decades placed Jewish born children with Jewish families. And they would not have placed a child. If a Christian family had come to them, they would not have put the child with the Christian family because what they were trying to do was ensure Jewish continuity. I think it's okay for, you know, I think it's okay for my synagogue not to hire a Christian rabbi, right? I mean, religious organizations have exemptions from the, the, the civil rights code. hundred percent. To allow them to perform their religious mission. What seems tricky here, first of all, is they seem not to have properly, I mean, what happened to this couple was cruel because the couple wasn't told this right up front. And so they went down this road where they thought they were going to get this child and then they didn't. And by the way, I've seen that happen to families and it is, there is nothing crueler. Like at that point, actually, justice really demands you place the child with this family. Yeah, it's like a deeply unchristian thing to do, by the way. It's so cruel to do to the family. And of course, the child then may languish for whoever knows how long. And the other tricky thing here is that Tennessee has passed a law saying, I think, I don't know the law, but what a lot of people, especially on the Christian right, are trying to do is ensure that these adoption agencies can also get state funding. And this is a bit trickier because I certainly understand that the people of the state have an interest in asking that state-funded agencies abide by a stricter idea of what anti-discrimination means. So it might be, and I don't know enough about this case, that what I would say is they should be allowed to do what they want to do, but they shouldn't be 
funded by the state or licensed by the state or given certain state prerogatives if they're going to discriminate against Jews. But I do think there is a space in civil society where religious organizations can work to propagate their religion. Jews do that all the time. In fact, there must be. In fact, without it, this is no longer recognizably America. It's a foundational tenet. But I mean, do you disagree with that, Stephanie? I mean, I think that this is just a horrible, like this is a horrible headline, right? This is just really messed up. Yeah, I'm looking right now at the Knoxville paper and it says under the law, which immediately takes effect, the state will be barred from denying an agency's license or grant application for public funds because of refusal to place a child with a family based on religious objections. And that sounds like a terrible law. It seems to me that if you want to do your sectarian thing, not only should you be denied state funds, but you shouldn't want state funds. You should not want to be entangled with the state. You can do Christian babies for Christian families, but you shouldn't get state funding for it. And I, I just, at the same time, I want to carve out a space where Jewish adoption agencies, you know, when the Messianic Jewish Jew for Jesus couple comes to them and says, we'd like your Jewish baby, where the Jewish adoption agency is allowed to say, no, 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 we're actually going to make sure you're going to raise this child in a Jewish home. That that seems like something we want in America or the Muslim adoption agency that doesn't have to give their baby to the Jewish or Christian home that can say we're looking for a Muslim home for this child. It's it just, it's, it's, it's complicated. A hundred percent. But again, you know, one, one more example. And by the way, Mark, I couldn't agree with you more. This is this is one more example of why state funding is is, you know, quite often not a terrific idea. But seeing the way this story has played out online and in social media and it's sort of like the news cycle, it is basically being presented as a sort of black and white case of bad people discriminating against, you know, good, well-meaning people which it's not. It's it's such an intricate, complicated story. And it is one more example of how unable we've become to talk and think seriously about religious liberty. Well, speaking of serious thinkers, can we talk about United States Representative Lauren Boebert, who always. Uh, apparently- re- Could always talk about my girl. There are a bunch of kippah-wearing Jewish visitors to the U.S. Capitol. And according to news reports, she said to them, are you guys, what are you guys, on a reconnaissance mission or something? <laughs> According to BuzzFeed, the outspoken Colorado Republican claimed the comment was a joke tied to criticism she has received over capital tours she repeatedly gave. The best part, by the way, of this story is, <laughs> in response, she says, I didn't know if they were Jews. I'm too short to see anyone's yarmulkes, which is a freaking hilarious line. Oh, my God. She's <laughs> like, I couldn't even see their horns from my, from my vantage point. <laughs> I'm sure they were there, but I couldn't see them. Their tails were tucked in their pants. How am I supposed to know that? The best part of this is that they were in an elevator together. And uh, an unnamed rabbi who was part of the group said he was left very confused. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> another unnamed witness, I love these unnamed witnesses, said right. she looked the group over from head to toe, suggesting that she understood <laughs> she was speaking to Jews when she made the comment. The famous bageling of Jews with the head to toe, the Gentile head to toe look. Porn to tail. <laughs> Somehow it's always the sort of, you know, right of center flavor of the week representative that gets slapped with these ridiculous stories. The first six times it happened, I was way more intent on getting upset. At this point, I'm like, you know what? You do you. We get it. Everyone you don't like is in. I don't know. I mean, Lauren Lauren Boebert and, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, I love a good left-wing wingnut. In fact, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's not in Congress— 
but who is a, a left-wing wingnut. He's in the NOTJ this week uh, at an anti-vax rally in D.C., according to one news source. RFK Jr. says that in the future, quote, none of us can run and none of us can hide because of Bill Gates' satellites and also 5G <laughs> and also the Holocaust. He said, quote, even in Hitler's Germany, you could hide in the attic like Anne Frank did, which, first of all, Anne Frank wasn't German. You dumb moron that what didn't happen in Germany as all of us who have been to the Anne Frank house while on mushrooms. No. And it's <laughs> <laughs> religiously like, on mushrooms. I feel seen. <laughs> second, second, like Bill Gate and 5G and Verizon 5G are not the Nazis. And oh my God, how far the, the, the apple fell from the tree in the case of RFK Jr. Anti-vax. Wait, but, but hold on. But I actually kind of like this point. First of all, <laughs> you know, I learned yesterday T-I-L, right? Or yeah. Y-I-L, that RFK Jr. actually has the best-selling book in America right now, which is oh widely unreported by anyone who takes tally of these things because he's, again, considered outside of some acceptable mainstream. But like the point that he makes is a good point. Look, this, no, this, this bio-surveillance <laughs> state that, no, that, no, that we're into, no. how fucking terrifying is it that like hiding is so much harder? It's, it's not that good a point. It's not a good point. No, no, think about it for a second. Like, for you to hide, if you are hiding for whatever reasons, which is something that is not inconceivable for Jews, right? Is it because of Bill Gates' surveillance microchips? It. Obviously not, but it's because, you know, a whole infrastructure of tech surveillance that we are building and succumbing to. I feel like that is a very, very, very generous reading of someone yeah. saying that 5G is like the Holocaust. <laughs> The Gestapo, 5G for Gestapo. Um, I will say, <laughs> here's where I draw my line. Give us back the yellow star. I never thought I'd be saying this. I stop <laughs> taking, don't you don't get to have the yellow star at your anti-vax rallies. Like that is historically significant and it's ours. It's like, ours. They made us wear it, and now I don't want you to wear it. That's actually really interesting. The way that that the queer community took the pink triangle. Should we be wearing yellow star? The way we took the brackets in Twitter, the, the three parentheses. Only, only us and sheriffs must be allowed we, to wear them now. Should we be wearing the yellow star? Those Jude sheriffs. I'm kind they're all of, sheriffs I'm, and they're all named Jude. Right. I'm kind of, now, if I were the yellow star, there would be some readers of my op-eds who would say that actually I want to put all Jews in concentration camps. Look, no one wears that, rocks that yellow star like Billy Joel did on stage after <laughs> Charlottesville at Madison Square Garden. Just, you know. Oh my God. Speaking of yellow. Guys, you think we are at risk. You you think that times are tough, but but I, I have some news that would cheer all of us up. Please. And they relate to technology. And they relate to Jews and they relate to fish because according to the Times of Israel, take note Hamas and everyone else who thinks that Israel trains dolphins and other animals to do its international spy work because scientists at Ben Gurion University in Beersheba say they have demonstrated a fish's ability to navigate on land, allowing it to drive a specially designed fish operated vehicle or FOV around a room. Six goldfish trained to use <laughs> the apparatus managed to find their way around the small room and toward a reward, wrote the authors of a study published this month in the journal Behavioral Brain Research. If there's one thing that's more terrifying than Israelis driving cars, it's Israelis training fish to drive cars. 
can you imagine? מה זה? This I have a right of way. Right of way is something you're born with. What are you, an idiot? What are you, blind? But do we owe Hamas an apology? Because all of a sudden, the, the killer assassin dolphin in the Mediterranean is not uh, looking so crazy. They were, according to the researchers, the fish were able to operate the vehicle, explore <laughs> the new environment, and reach the target. Ooh, regardless target. of the starting point. That's right. All while avoiding dead ends, correcting location inaccuracies, and stopping for some shawarma along the way. <laughs> and, and this is confusing because they actually didn't even need to use ways to correct location inaccuracies. They did not need to use the Israeli app ways. No, they, they use an application called Waves. Waves. Um, Here's my question. Why can't I tra- train my human children to clear their dishes, but in Israel right. they could treat goldfish to drive? <laughs> it just doesn't seem right. Instead of the HOV lane, we're going to see the FOV lane for all like the fish, the goldfish. Mm-hmm. Are goldfish smart? What's going on here? <laughs> Are they the German shepherds of the aquatic world? Why is anyone doing this? And you haven't even seen the, the gefilte or the herring ride a, drive a car. <laughs> They're 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 in like like a bathtub like a it's a go carp. There's, there's gonna be a video game called, called Mario Carp. <laughs> I sometimes think there just aren't that many people there. How do they have enough people for an entire film industry, for universities, for a desalinization industry, for Stissel and Fauda casts? Right. I, I mean this in total seriousness. Like you're talking about you know less than the population of New York City. And they seem to have extra good minds left over to train goldfish. Like I it, have a it's... totally serious answer. Do you want a totally okay. serious answer? I, I yeah. actually have one. Uh, because I think, look, honestly, this is what the idea of chosenness does for you, right? It doesn't mean that you're better. It means that for some reason, some historical theological task has been you know, left at your doorstep. And then you spend the rest of your time wondering... What does this thing mean? Why am I in this category? How do I justify it? And, and then it creates some kind of tension that propels you to go ahead and try and achieve in whatever field you are. And, and honestly, Wait, if when it look, propels you, are you in the goldfish cart? You are absolutely in the goldfish cart. But look, this is something that I'm very serious about because I, I can't tell you how depressed I am by having so many conversations with, with people here, including dear friends who are wonderful, you know, mindful, conscientious people. And they have no idea what it is that they want to do with life. They they go from, you know, a work that they sort of dislike to binging on shows on Netflix to buying shit on Amazon and 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 living these lives that are that are stultifying and, and kind of airless and mirthless because they can't imagine that there is some kind of big great purpose to life. In Israel, you're told what the great big purpose is the freaking day you emerge, right? Now, you may disagree with the purpose, but the idea that there is a purpose is deeply ingrained in you. And you go out and you find a purpose. They suction the goop off you and say, you are chosen. That's right. Make a country. No, 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 you're chosen. Now figure out what it means. Okay, so this is after you return from those like two years after the army, uh, like tripping in Goa, India. That's right. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. 
This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jewish guest this week is Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker. He's a rabbi at Temple Beth Israel, the synagogue in Colleyville, where two Saturdays ago, an armed man took four people, including Rabbi Citron Walker, hostage. Mark talked to him this week after things had quieted down a bit. They talked about everything from him growing up as the only Jewish kid in school in Lansing, Michigan, to what it's like being proselytized to by local clergy in Texas, and of course, about the incident two weeks ago and how he is doing. Rabbi, thanks for joining Unorthodox. Thanks for being one of our Jews of the Week on our podcast. Really appreciate having you here. It's good to be here. I know you've talked a lot in the last week about what happened two Saturdays ago. We're going to get to that eventually. But first, I have a different question. I'm, I'm excited to talk to a Texas rabbi. And, you know, I want you to say a little bit about, let's start, let's start way in the beginning. What was your Jewish upbringing like? I was born in Lansing, Michigan the home of all Judaism. Uh, No, I was the only Jewish kid growing up. Other than my brother and sister, elementary school, middle school, it was just me. We went to a synagogue, Shari Zedek in East Lansing, uh, which was a reform and conservative congregation. We had traditional services and we had uh, liberal services, uh, depending on your taste. I grew up in the reform movement. I was a misty president, uh, the former president of the 
Michigan State Temple Youth, which was the Nifty Youth Group uh, before the name got changed. Wait, it's not Nifty anymore? What is it now? Well, it's Nifty now, but instead of calling it Misty, it would be Nifty's Michigan region. Oh, you mean they've lost the regional acronyms? Like there are no more Bifties and Tifties and Shrifties? Uh, right now it's Nifty Tour. That was done to bring us... Actually, I was a part of that vote uh, back my senior year when I was on... Uh, regional board. And the, we made the decision to kind of unify, just like BBYO was BBYO. They wanted everything to be nifty because in college, people would get together and people would say, well, I'm I'm from Tofty and well, I'm from Nifty. <laughs> and they wouldn't necessarily, like it would take a little bit to connect that it was actually the same youth group. So as to make it a more frictionless experience when Nifty alumni got together they didn't have to work through the bifties and tifties and rifties and sifties. Oh, that's, I, you know, you learn something new every day. Okay. So you were a big macher in, in Misty. Not a, well, it was nice to be, be a part of it. It was wonderful. And it was definitely right. Like you have to explain everything to everyone, you know, growing up. Um, I definitely knew what it was like, although we didn't, ex- I didn't experience any anti-Semitism or anything along those lines. I was just different for being Jewish. Um, High school, we had a few Jewish friends. Uh, We had a French exchange student who was Jewish, who we ended up taking, which was wonderful. And college was once proud graduate of the University of Michigan, participated in Hillel. Although after, you know, the high school leadership, I was glad not to be a, you know, like one of the leaders of the group. I was just friends with and and, and a part of uh, the Hillel, the reform group at Hillel. Okay, but, and then? Oh, and then, in terms of my path to the rabbinate, uh, back at Camp Kutz, Zichronali Vracha. So Camp Kutz was this wonderful place where somebody, uh, somebody kind of high up in Nifty for the first time asked me, so Charlie, have you ever thought about becoming a rabbi? And I was able to share with him at the time, uh, no, no, I've actually never thought about becoming a rabbi. What did you think you were going to do? At that point, I didn't know if I was going to be a teacher or a therapist as I got more into college. Well, you know, I was really involved with some service learning, volunteer work and that kind of a thing. After college, I was the assistant director of a small soup kitchen. And before that, I worked for an incredible civil and human rights organization in Detroit. So I thought maybe like that was going to be my path. But the rabbinate by my sophomore year of college, I never thought about it. Well, I I had started thinking about it because of that question. And sophomore year, I had a friend of mine who was telling me that they were going to become an interior designer. And I said, you know something? I'm going to become a rabbi. And did that friend become an interior designer? I have no idea. (laughs) But you became a rabbi. And so you went to Hebrew Union College. So after three years in the nonprofit world, I went to HUC in in Jerusalem, 2001-2002. We had a very traumatic year in Israel. Although it was a wonderful year. Right, you were there for 9-11. Yeah, for me, 9-11 happened in the afternoon. And there was a number of terrorist attacks, far too many, during our year in Israel program. Uh, when Rabbi David Ellenson would come and visit us uh, so often. At the head of HUC, yeah. He's, he's such a compassionate individual. It was so emotional, he would cry. And so we would, uh, Michael Marmer, Rabbi Michael Marmer, dubbed it not the year in Israel, but it was our tear in Israel program. <laughs> wow. And then four years in Addy. And then for is it Sandy? And then and then to Colleyville, yes, correct. Which was starting up. Are you the only rabbi they've ever had? I'm the first full time rabbi. They had student rabbis uh, before. Then it was a student pulpit in Cincinnati. So give me a sense of it's it's how far from Fort Worth? 
Uh, we're probably around a half an hour from Fort Worth. Is it Fort Worth? Like, give me a sense of what is this town? Is it a Jew? Is it a suburb? Is it an exurb? Is it a rural town? Is it is it Jewy? I consider it to be an exurb. It's 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 exurban. It is uh, people can drive in and do commute into Dallas. They commute into Fort Worth and they commute to the airport because the airport's so close. I just find parts of the country where there's so much space and so many different towns. You know, Greater Atlanta, Greater Dallas. I find these places baffling. Having always lived in these crowded New Englandy northeastern place like when you can choose from 20 places within 40 minutes on the freeway of Dallas or Fort Worth who goes to Colleyville well actually Tarrant County and Northeast Tarrant in particular right it's been one of the fastest growing counties i think for the past 2 or 3 decades like 30 40 years ago it was farmland like out in Colleyville and South Lake area, there, there was nothing there. It was people telling me about what it was like growing up. There was like two streetlights. And now it's truly like the exurban, like it's beautiful, very mixed in terms of there's some really ginormous homes, uh, McMansions, and there's right next door, you'll have this small little country ranch with property and maybe some goats. When I drive to the congregation each morning, there's like llamas. I mean, no, I kid you not. Like it's so it's, there's a little touch of farmland and a whole lot of suburban. Interesting. Has the congregation grown under your stewardship? What was it when you got there and what is it now? I mean, both in numbers, but also in kind of spirit. When I got there, there was, you know, 90 plus households and within five to 10 years, and we've gone up to, you know, 170 uh, maybe 180 and we're, it's been kind of up and down. We've lost a little bit of membership during COVID times. And so we're somewhere in the 150, 160 ballpark, I think. When we think about the future of Judaism, you know, some of the big growing regions are in the South. One of the things we talk about a lot on the show is how are we going to do this when Jews are so scattered? And I guess I'm curious, you know, when we're not in the same shtetl anymore, whether it's the Upper West Side or Brookline or wherever, when it's places like Tarrant County. Is that hard? Am I right that that's a challenging place to do Judaism because nobody nobody lives next door to anybody? No, it's an amazing place to do Judaism. I mean, come on, you know the song, wherever you go, there's always someone Jewish, right? I mean, I don't know that one. Who is, I don't know that one. I thought I knew every quirky Jewish novelty song. Oh, yes. No, look it up. It's fantastic. Okay, we will. We'll actually drop it in. We'll drop in a recording of that song <laughs> right now. We'll be right back. Josh is going to find a recording. We'll be right back. Wherever you go, there's always someone Jewish. You're never alone when you say you're a Jew. So when you're not home and you're somewhere kind of newish, the odds are don't look far because they're Jewish too. Sing it with me. Okay, here we are. We're right back. Okay, it's an amazing place to do Jewish. Tell me why. Look, I, I know what it was like for our kids, right, who are growing up in these schools where there's not a lot of Jews. And I will say that in our area of the country, it's really important because Jews live here, right? And so we got to go where, where the Jews are. We have to be where the Jews are. And it's, it, it's not easy when there is a lot of proselytizing. It's not easy when there is a lot of pressure and so to, to be at the synagogue and to do religious school, to do services and to create, right? We're a little bit of synagogue and we're a little bit of JCC and we're a little bit of everything. I mean, that's one of the things that's been so wonderful is that 
I think that our congregation in a lot of ways has been dynamic. There are certainly times where we have done better or worse, but we're a place where you can really get to know each other. Part of our mission is that we want to be a place where you can belong. That's that what Congregation Beth Israel has been. And so almost everyone in our community moved there, right? Everyone's a transplant. No one has family. And so when it works out well, it's of course been really hard during COVID times, but when it works out well, people don't just find their Jewish community, they find their family at the congregation. I didn't think we were going to go here, but I'm actually interested about the proselytizing. Do you do you feel like a lot of the Jews in your community, people are trying to bring them to Christ? I mean, is that what's going on? A lot of, lot of evangelical Christian, is this in school? Is this teenage, is this youth groups at the public high schools where are saying, hey, come to Crossroads Christian or, you know, Vox Christian, come to our mega church after school. It's where the good times are. What are you seeing? Tell me about that. Well, the answer is yes. There's a little bit of that kind of thing. I remember my first... My first week or two, again, I'm brand new rabbi, and two congregants call me and say, you have to take a look at this mega church because on their website, they had a three or four day seminar on how to proselytize to Jews, how to convert Jews. Like that was in our community. This was a church in your community. That was my welcome to the community. It, it's only happened a couple of times to me in public, but I definitely almost had to be not nice with a wonderful old lady who was absolutely convinced that she knew that I was a rabbi and she was going to convert me. And I mean, I, I've literally met with pastors, not many, right? But one or two is a part of interfaith outreach. I wanted to take the meeting. We sat down and had lunch. And when I made it clear that, no, I was not interested in conversion, the conversation was basically over. It used to be even worse, right? There there are stories of people in our congregation, again, growing up in this community where they went to a birthday party, a pool party, and the youth minister was there, right? I mean, like it's that kind of that kind of extreme proselytization. We don't see that as much, but there is a lot of pressure on the kids, and there is a lot of pressure, like you've been friends with someone for a very, very long time. And all of a sudden, they are crying in your kitchen because they're just so sad. That you're not going to heaven with them. That happens sometimes. Do you ever feel, I ask this in all sincerity because we talk about this on the podcast, do you ever feel like, you know, we need to launch a a counteroffensive? Like, should you be at the pool parties gathering kids around and saying, guys, you've got this false Messiah, Jesus. And then you've got the original stuff here, the original unadulterated hundred proof stuff. It's called Judaism. We'd love to have you at Friday night services this weekend. Like who who's in? I would say that I joke about those things, but no, never I would never actually do it. However, I would say that I have done more than my fair share of conversions and you know, guided people through the process because they were legitimately interested in Judaism because they were kind of rejecting everything else that they had experienced before. This is so interesting. And I wish we had more time. I know you, you've been awfully busy with these interview requests. How soon after a terrible thing happens, like the hostage taking, do you get the PR firm to, to deflect all the journalists like us and to manage us? I'm not at all belittling it. I think it's a really smart move. But I mean, were you already working with them or did someone say, you need someone to handle press right now? Actually, we got our incredible PR firm from the Muslim community 
had experienced some trauma and made the recommendation. And it wasn't to me, of course, it was to our, you know, to our leadership. And literally that night after we were released, or well, I guess we freed ourselves at the same time as the FBI was in the process of starting to come in. And I guess later on that evening, while I was debriefing with the FBI, our leadership was already in contact because already, already the media requests had been overwhelming and they've been a lifeline. Like it's been invaluable. It's, it's the whole experience, as you can imagine, has been overwhelming. I've moved on that. When I was reporting on Pittsburgh, initially, I was put off by aspects of constituencies in the community that were working through PR firms. And then I've, I finally came to realize this is crazy. These are people dealing, their whole lives would be taken over with handling media requests if they didn't pay someone to do it so they could keep doing the work of Judaism. I was, I was, right. I experienced trauma. I was completely overwhelmed by the experience. And then I had media knocking on my door. My, you know, one of my congregants had media knocking on his door. All of the leadership, right? Everybody wanted comments and none of us, none of us were, none of us were prepared for that. It's not, it's not our best look as the media when we knock on people's doors that day or the next day. Although I have, I understand that media has a job to do and I've made a point to go out. And even when I wasn't making comments at the time, I've really tried to thank the media for, because I know that they have a job to do and uh, they're trying their best to communicate our experience and our story. Um, I should have led with this, but how are you doing? Better than I was, right? It's after spending Shabbos and being able to just lead a Shabbos service in Chantora and Bench Gomel, I'm doing, a, I'm doing a lot better. I'd say that we're taking baby steps forward uh, we're starting the healing process, getting to be at religious school and share some stories with the kids and be on the floor with them. The little ones uh, was was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. So a lot better. So my understanding is, and I haven't done any original reporting on this. I'm going on on press, you know, other other sources here that in fact you're you're not going back. That this happened while the synagogue was in the process of looking for a replacement. Is that, is that all, what's the story there? Right now, not much of a story. And let me, let me leave it at that if I can. Uh, it's, yeah, let me, let me leave it there if, if I can at the moment. Okay. It's, uh, let me just, let me just say that even, even that piece of it, especially some of the initial reporting about it was, was, was really harmful uh, in, in a lot of ways. Is there anything the media got wrong that you want to correct? I think they've been working on, I think that they've been working on uh, making corrections and I haven't read all the media. I, 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 so I don't, I don't actually know what, 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 what to say other than uh, we're still in the aftermath and it's still a little bit early. And yeah, so I, so, so I appreciate, uh, let me just say that I would appreciate that compassion at this point. One of the things we're always interested in are the, the, the tensions within congregations and how hard it can be for even a really successful rabbi and someone who has built up a congregation, you know, doubled or tripled it in size and been there for over a decade, that it seems like we're seeing across the country in reform and conservative Judaism, also in Orthodox Judaism, everywhere you go, that 
the the kind of lifespan of a of a rabbinate of a pulpit at a given congregation seems to be shrinking all the time. In fact, I was talking to a rabbi this week who said, if you look at the one of the movements, I don't remember if he was talking about reform or conservative, but one of the movements job sites that actually there are more openings this year by a factor of two or three than he had ever seen before. He thought a lot of that was COVID related stress, like people leaving the field. A lot of it was tensions over over Israel or guns or other political things where we've become so polarized. And 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 he thought that it was from both sides. He thought there were rabbis leaving pulpits where, because the congregation was largely to their left and con- rabbis leaving pulpits where the congregation was largely to their right, speaking crudely. You know, I guess, do you, do you feel like the job has become harder to do in the past, let's say five years because of COVID and, and political polarization or something else? I would say that living in society has gotten harder because of polarization. Right. Instead of solving problems, a lot of people are just too busy yelling at each other. It takes all sides. And that's actually one of that's been a pretty consistent message. Right. The Talmud teaches us that disagreement is natural. It's it's a part of being human. We talk all the time about two Jews, three opinions. We laugh about it. And then we don't actually listen to what that means. It means that we're gonna disagree. It means that we're not gonna see eye to eye. And that doesn't mean that we need to take that personally. We shouldn't take it personally. I know that it's definitely been challenging for my colleagues. I mean, synagogue politics are always, you know, there's always ups and downs as far as that goes. It doesn't matter the congregation. The political polarization though, it's hard to do a teaching about a topic because of how it might be perceived or because of the hidden message that one might be offering. I mean, I haven't gotten a ton of that, but I've gotten some. I've really tried to teach Torah. One of the main messages are that we need to work together on the right and on the left to solve our problems. That's that's what we need. That's what we need in our society. That's also what we need in our synagogues, right? If we're really two Jews, three opinions, then we need to expect that on boards and within synagogues that we're gonna, we're not, we need to be able to listen to each other. We need to be able to understand and it's okay if we don't agree. We still have to be able to make decisions. That's a, that's, that's a big part of it. That's, that's really important that our society needs to relearn to some extent. What are your favorite moments as a rabbi? I love Purim spiel. I love, so I love life cycle events, um, all life cycle events. Some of the most joyous events that I've done are actually funerals. I mean, baby namings and weddings, bar and bat mitzvah. Some of my favorite moments are just leading services and, and being with people. Uh, I mean, I, like, I, I really love all aspects of being a rabbi. So whether it's teaching our youth or teaching our adults, I, I, I've really loved all of it. And I just feel honored that anyone would allow me to be a part of their life in that way. It, it's really been a beautiful thing for me. Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, uh, President Emeritus of MISTI, Michigan Synagogue. Wait, <laughs> MIFTI? MIT? What is it? What was Misty? Temple of Youth. Thank you for joining us. And yeah, you'll come back sometime. Thank you for your hard work in the pulpit and, you know, saving Jews and Judaism. So uh, be well. Thank you so much, Mark.
tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. First of all, hi, Unorthodox. I'm a little behind. I just heard episode 298. Just before the Ruth Weiss interview, Mark observed that the farming states are known for their success in high school and college wrestling, Iowa, Nebraska, et cetera. Maybe it's just my admittedly low diet of gay literature, but I personally think the correlation is more with repressed homosexuality in Calvinist-tending parts of the United States and the homoeroticism of wrestling. Yours, a faithful listener. So as the only um, former high school wrestler on this podcast, I'm going to take this one. Which is hilarious, by the way. That's one of the funniest things about you. Go ahead. So (laughs) I just went, like my life was all fribbles and fishamajigs and the high school wrestling. So this is a misconception. There's nothing wrong with homoeroticism in high school sports. Of course, it's always there when humans get sweaty with other humans of the same gender. But actually wrestling, wrestling practice and wrestling matches are so painful and so miserable. I mean, I've heard they're rivaled by crew practices, but in terms of just making you want to throw up and then sleep 12 hours later that night, nothing, wrestling is so miserable and oppressive that actually you have you have no sexual thoughts when you're wrestling. I'm just you might have sexual thoughts watching wrestling as a spectator, <laughs> but I actually think this is a deep miss. And people say, "Oh, they're in the singlets, these like hunky guys wearing very little clothes." No, no, no. You think you're going to die. They have cauliflower ear. Hunky guys with their perfect hair. What's that thing that's always in the in the wrestling rooms? Oh, so staff infection. So my freshman year Glenn Shagno, our okay. captain, <laughs> got a staph infection on half his face. Half of his face swelled up with pus because of of bacteria in the wrestling mats. Like you don't even I mean, understand how unerotic wrestling is. But but thanks for trying. I mean, you know, thanks for playing. I'm happy to bring Calvinism in here anyway. <laughs> Let's go theological. And now this follow-up letter from Molly Marjorie Srogas, who wrote in last week about our interview with Liz Lang. Dear Unorthodox, I wanted to offer my sincerest thanks for your beautiful thoughts on my letter last week. I almost didn't send it because, as Liel points out, I don't give enough either. But I think Mark hit it perfectly. In my frustration at the simplification of Miss Lang's critics as jealous and lazy, I missed a different sort of complexity. I'm glad I sent it because it's brought me somewhere I otherwise wouldn't have gone, and I hope it did the same for you. All my gratitude, Molly Marjorie Srogas. What a nice letter. Thank you. Amazing. We got two letters on the question of the word agita, which some have wrongly, I guess, thought is Yiddish-based. Randy Cohen, Randy with an I, Cohen, writes from Randolph, New Jersey. I'm a product of an Italian-American mother. I like to think of humans as products, right? I'm a product of an Italian-American mother and a Jewish father. The word agita was always and only used by my Italian side of the family. Love your show, Randy Cohen. Thank you. And then from Benita Black. The unimprovably named Benita Black. That's a hardcore name. Dear Unorthodox, although many New York Jews, my tribe, use the word agita, there is certainly a good deal of overlap in spilkus. And I ask, which word feels better in your mouth? So she's saying, why not use spilkus instead of agita? Because that's our native word and it feels better in the mouth. Love your podcast. I don't know the Yiddish for that. Benita Black. Benita, the Yiddish for I love your podcast is I love your podcast. And we love you. And you give us no spilkus. By the way, I didn't know spilkus until I married Ben Cohen. So I started dating Ben Cohen. It was like the night before he had to fly somewhere for work. And he was like, I have spilkus. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Is that like a something I need to get tested for? Like, what is, it is like that? like a staph infection? I love spilkus. It's like pins and needles, right? I actually think that's one of those Yiddish or Yiddish-ish words that became huge because of Coffee Talk with Linda Richmond on Saturday Night Live, in which Michael Myers played a version of his then mother-in-law. And she would always talk about, I have spilkus in my oh, Genektika Zoink. This show used to be hosted by my friend Paul Baldwin. 
but he developed spilkus in his Connecticut <laughs> This is my best friend, Liz Rosenberg. Linda, don't talk to me. I'm having a bad hair day. <laughs> By the way, this is my mother. She's visiting from Scottsdale. Don't worry, I promised I wouldn't say anything. I'll just sit here in the dark like a dog. Mama, no one wants to hear how gassy you are. You don't know the service I've had with this woman. And the thing about that whole shtick was you didn't, some of the words were actual Yiddish and some of them were just Mike Myers being crazy. So Faklemt like had an 8 trillion percentage jump in usage in America when that skit was going on. And it's like, do you spell it verklempt, verklempt? Right, what are you exactly. And spilkus, I had never heard. I mean, I didn't hear a lot of Yiddish growing up, but whereas I'd heard many Yiddish words, I had never heard spilkus, but spilkus became very, very big with that skit. It's like nervous energy. I think it literally means like pins. You just, you got spilkus. Like uh-huh. it's the night before a flight is the perfect way to do it. The night before a test, you, you have spilkus. Let's bring spilkus back. Now that I know Ajita is not Yiddish. I'm, I'm, I'm all about back. Spilkus. And speaking of things that I'm going to say, we got another voicemail. This happens every now and then. You know, first they came for Liel and then they came for Mark. And finally they like came for me. I love your show. I've contributed. However, I still am annoyed by the like overabundance of like, like, like the word like. It drives me crazy like, you know, like it's just, it's creeping back like. I've complained a few times like, oh, but it's creeping back. I hate to say it, but Stephanie, like, come on, like. There are so many, like, other ways to That was, like, speak, great. Like, I mean, I don't, don't think I sound like that, but Wait, I'm also never going to apologize for my verbal tics or my uh, manner of so speaking like, because I don't do that anymore. Good for you. One of the great rabbis I know uh, says, look, I'm from the San Fernando Valley. Everyone talks this way. I'm 39 years old. I use like all the time and I won't apologize for it. And and he does it in sermons and he just doesn't, he doesn't code switch. That is how he sounds as a person of that generation. And of course, I'm of that generation too. Um, you know, the like sort of came up came up in the 80s and then it stayed with us and it came up in my childhood and, you know, I have it as well. I try to make some effort to code switch. Do you, Stephanie, if you had to ever have a job outside of tablet, it's been your only job ever, but let's say you were going to apply for a job at NPR or the New York Times. Like write a cover letter? Yeah, like if you had to go out on the job market, would there be part of you that would say, I'm going to try to get rid of the verbal hesitations, the likes and the ums, which again, everyone has at this point. Would you feel some need to code switch if you had to go out into a professional world outside of tablet? No, I don't even notice it anymore. Um, and I think, oh, I just said, um, I don't like, I don't like starting to think about how, how it is that I, that, that I, that I talk. I don't like it. Can I just quickly say, producer Josh Cross, as a producer and somebody who's listened to thousands and thousands of hours of people talking. Of us talking? Yeah, well, not just you, <laughs> but like before this, anybody has verbal tics. Right. And there is a thing where you don't like somebody else's because you're not used to hearing it. There's a reason there's a joke that Israelis all go, eh, and Canadians go, a, eh, and the French, like, Ooh. anybody who complains, like, you have them. And if you're speaking extemporaneously, not scripted, everybody has this. And so you need to just take a step back and realize you're listening to a human being speaking. As the Orthodox say, 100%, 100%. 100%. We want your voicemails and emails like now. Call us 914-570-4869 or write to us on orthodox at tabletmag.com. Mazel Stephanie, do you have a Mazel 
I have a mazel tea to my grandparents, Cecile and Al Rothhaus. They just celebrated their 68th wedding anniversary, and they're the best. We're back on the bi-weekly Boca Zooms. Um, so we're at that point of the pandemic where we're back to the family Zooms, um, which has been very, very, very fun. Grandma Cecile, Grandpa Al, love you guys. Boca Zooms uh, segues nicely to my Mazel Tov because it sounds like a fast service dine and dash, you know, maybe there are waitresses roller skating to your car restaurant in Florida. Boca Zooms. I don't think you're supposed to dine and dash there, though. <laughs> the the Zooms are, places. I mean, right. if you dashed, you, you would be pretty easy to catch because, you know, with the walker and everything. The, the Zooms are, are little sliders or maybe it's their special signature milkshake. I don't know, but I want to go eat at Boca Zooms. I also want to eat at Friendly's and a Mazel Tov to Friendly's, which having come out of bankruptcy, four times, uh, the pride of Springfield, Massachusetts, Friendly's Restaurants, is now apparently, and I have to thank one of our, our listeners for this. I forget who sent it to me, but it's this guy who, he's a convert. He grew up in Feeding Hills, which is a neighborhood in Aguam. Anyway, you guys all know what I'm talking about, but he wrote to, he keeps me updated on Friendly's News and he saw an item in the Boston Globe that out in Westfield, which is not too far from us, and it's where Derek lived right after his mom married Carl, but then they moved back to Springfield. Friendly's is launching a quick service cafe model. So it's it's mostly going to be takeout, but if you want to sit down and eat, they will, or they'll bring it to your car. So they're actually going retro. It's like you park and someone roller skates out and brings you food. And they say they're going to maintain the Friendly's classics. And I will be the judge of that. Apparently it's going to open in February. I will go up there, despite being a vegetarian, I will order fish majig, see if they still have it. I will order a fribble, but Mazel Tov for, to Friendlies for just keeping on trucking. You're not going to let the brand die, and we're and we're not going to let it die. Liel, I I have a farewell, which is a particularly sad one for me, to the great Marvin Aday, better known as Kosher Meatloaf, who left us this week way too early. All we could say is thank you and hot patootie, bless your soul. We really love your rock and roll. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross, who edits the show, along with producers Robert Scaramuccia and Quinn Waller. She's no longer the Quintern, so the question is, is she now the Quaducer or the Queditor? Our managing producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Episode art by Esther Werdiger, theme music by Golem, and mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by the one and only Rabbi Charlie Citrin Walker of Temple Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas. We come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Mm-hmm.